we've reached a point that anyone reading or preaching through the book of Judges inevitably must come to. And it is Jephthah, his vow. Why did he make it? Did he keep it? How did he keep it? Why is he commended in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews? And what part of what follows there might apply to him? Is it the part that says through weakness became strong or something else? Jephthah is a confusing character. He really existed. He really made a vow. And I think the scriptures clearly say that he kept that vow. And he is cemented in Hebrews eleven thirty two only by name. None of his works are there condemned or commended, just his name appears. And just by the appearance of that name ties him back to the first verse of Hebrews 11. And he is set before us as a man of faith, even a man of great faith. I want to do something before we begin with Judges 11, and my goal here is to work through the seventh verse of the twelfth chapter where we read the summary of Jephthah in that he judged Israel for six years, and then he died and was buried. So almost as suddenly as he appears on the scene, comparatively speaking to the length of some of the other judges, he goes right off of the scene. And so a few beginning considerations for Jephthah. I've had a couple of you tell me throughout our study of this book that you were very interested in this chapter concerning him and what we would make of it when we got to it. Some considerations to start with which are going to temper everything else that I'll say. Let me just say at the beginning, I don't know all there is to know about Jephthah. I'm still confused after studying this for weeks. I do know this, that the Lord is faithful. Every word of the scripture is inspired. It's here for our profit, for our learning. Certainly there is something we can learn from this man. Certainly there is something to be emulated in his faith. But we need not forget the overall tenor of the book of Judges. The very last verse and then the sixth verse of chapter 17 tell us that every man was doing right in his own eyes and according to himself. So let me read the last verse. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That applies to Jephthah as well. And one person has astutely said that even the judges or even the deliverers or the saviors. And that's, that's a faithful translation of the word judge that is applied to some, not all of these names. It could be all of these three words would apply, a judge, a deliverer, or even a savior. And back to this statement, even the judges deliverers or saviors did what was right in their own eyes. Also, when we think of Jephthah, 
The scripture is silent in either commending or condemning his acts as a judge. That's important. We can't tread upon ground that the scriptures haven't given us. And in that sense, Deuteronomy 29, 29 at some point has to come to play upon our consideration of Jephthah. That verse reads, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So don't forget that as we go through. Read carefully or listen carefully as I read and then go home and read carefully again. Jephthah's actions are neither commended nor condemned. God remains some would say, mysteriously silent. I think there's a reason for that. We'll get to it. But I also want you to remember what at least one of the focuses of this book and the consideration of these judges are for us, and that's to see over and over and over again their ineptitude and failure in their actions. This does... At least this in our lives. It awakens us to the need of a true judge who will never fail. Who will never abuse his power. And who never sins. Indeed, he could not sin. It awakens and births a desire for us to see Jesus as the one true judge and savior. But also the verse I've already mentioned, Hebrews 11.32, just as with Gideon. I'll remind you, Gideon's name is in that verse. And I want you to see the bookends of both of these men. There's some great similarities in them. Both of them, interestingly, in the scriptures are singled out and called out as being mighty men of valor. Both of them have great military exploits and are used of God. We have to give Jephthah his credit and due. God uses him. Both of these men failed miserably at points. And yet both of them find their names recorded in Hebrews 11. So that's the bookends of their life. Mighty men of valor, Hebrews 11. Everything in the middle is a mess. And in that, we're reminded of the bookends of our own life, right? The bookends of our spiritual life. We are referred to, in a sense, as mighty people of valor, only in the sense that we receive strength of the Lord. And then our names recorded in a book as well of the faithful, not Hebrews 11, a much higher book. But in the same sense, everything in the middle is a mess, right? Which proves the point that Hebrews 11.32, that verse and the names recorded there, really all of the names in that chapter are there because of grace. And are there because of the unswerving faithfulness of God to bring to completion the good work he started in any people. The only reason we make it to the end and persevere is because of the sustaining, persevering grace of God at work in us. Leave it to me and leave it to you. Leave it to our collective strength. We will fail time and again, 
miserably. But the grace of God, as we said last week, is indeed amazing. So I want you to look with me at the first three verses of this 11th chapter. This is what, what we'll call Jephthah's rise to power. And at the outset, before I read this, I want you to note with me that there is absent from any mention in Jephthah's life or his rise to power that the Lord raised him up. That pattern was set for us in Othniel, the very first judge. It was continued with Ehud, and it also continues with others, though not explicitly stated, but apparent in Gideon. It was apparent that the Lord had raised him up. But when we begin to look at Jephthah, there is nothing here that tells us that God raised him up. He is brought to power by people who had previously cast him out. The only reason he comes back into the picture at all is because he was a mighty man of valor, and a mighty man of valor was needed for the day in which they found themselves in because they were hard-pressed and harassed by another people group. And I think, in part, the fact that Jephthah appears on the scene at all in strength and as a mighty warrior can only be attributed to nothing in him, nothing in the people, but only the fact that we saw last week that in verse 16 of chapter 10, the soul of God could no longer endure the misery of people, of, of his people. So when we think about Jephthah, we have to come down on a statement something like this. The Lord allowed his rise to power, but was not the cause of it. The Lord didn't stop it, in other words. And the only attributing factor, again, is because he couldn't stand to see the misery of his people. Grace again. Mercy again. So here are the details of this man. Verse 1, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah, it was his father. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Now what a description of this delivering savior of a judge. No logical explanation how this man ends in Hebrews 11, is there? Let me read the characteristics of his life again. The only positive thing that is said here is that he's a mighty man of valor, but even that is in a very negative context. He's the son of a harlot. He was driven out by his brothers, by his own household. Notice whom he attracted to himself. Worthless men. Worthless men were drawn to this seemingly worthless man. 
they banded together with him and went out raiding or destroying with him. And yet, we agree with this statement. Amazingly, the Lord purposed to use him. There is a point in this chapter which we're going to get to. I'll read the opening verses of it that said, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. God did use him. And it is striking that he did. So take heart. If you think that you have nothing to offer, take heart if your life is a description fitting that of the first three verses of Jephthah 11. It may very well please the Lord to use you in some way or another. Now, verse 4 tells us why it was necessary that he rise to power. Verse 4 tells us it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war with the people or against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah. Why did they go get Jephthah? He was a mighty man of valor. He was a fighter. He was a warrior and apparently a very successful one. So rather than praying to God for deliverance, rather than truly repenting of their wickedness by joining themselves to false gods, what does, what does this, quote, people of God do? They go and get a worthless man and his band of raiders to come and deliver them. And here is what they say to him in verse 6. Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me? Remember, they drove him out. He's a son of a harlot. His own brethren said, you'll have no inheritance in my father's house. You're the son of another woman. So Jephthah remembers their harsh treatment of him and says, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress or in trouble? The elders of Gilead say to Jephthah, this, that is why we have turned again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so I think verse 9 is critical to any understanding of Jephthah. Any, any theology of Jephthah you want to build, you have to include verse 9. How you understand his vow, how you understand his willingness to come to power, how you understand that he came back to a people that had driven him out. Verse 9 has to be a major player. And verse 9 says, so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? What's driving this man? The same thing that drives a lot of us if we don't hold it in check. Pride. Are you going to 
recognize me, the one that you previously cast out, the one that you hated? Are you going to recognize me if I come and fight with you and for you? In the end, if the Lord notices arrogance, I think it's arrogance when he says, if the Lord delivers them to me. Will I then be recognized as your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be a witness between us. If we do not do according to your words, then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So both of these groups are going to get what they want. The people get a deliverer. The people get someone to save them from Ammon. And Jephthah, the outcast, gets to be head of a people. Jephthah strikingly also bears resemblance in some ways to Christ, despised and rejected of men yet a savior. But that's about as far as we can go in seeing in him any resemblance of our savior. So what was the result of this rise to power? Notice as you read through the 11th chapter, Jephthah is very gifted in speaking. The things that he says are historically accurate when he gives an answer to the king of Ammon. And the king is asking him here, down in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 11. When Jephthah asks the king in verse 12, what do you have against me? that you have come to fight against me in my land. And the king and the people of Ammon answered to Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from, the Arnon, from Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. So the king of the people of Ammon had rewritten history just a bit. A historical revisionist's. We have those in our own day, don't we? He saw history through eyes that were tainted. And this is where Jephthah begins to show his, his eloquence of speech. And he recounts to this king, no, no, that's not right at all. You got your facts all messed up. Let me set you straight. And he sets him straight. We won't take the time to read it, but if you read verses 14 down through verse 23 or so, you'll see that Jephthah very astutely and historically accurate reveals to this king exactly how the people of Israel had received the land. And he even does so in a way that gives glory to God for giving the land to Israel. And he even... Let's give him some credit here. In the 27th verse, he even recognizes that it will be the Lord whom he calls the judge 
May the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So he has some knowledge of Old Testament history. And it's accurate. He reveals that to the king. He has some knowledge of the true Lord and judge of Israel. And he has some knowledge that if the Lord helps him, he will be successful. And then we reach this verse 29. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That's the only reason why he ever gets into Hebrews 11. His own actions don't get him there. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The things that he did for the people, even though improperly motivated by his own desire to be their head, the Lord used him to deliver this people. Why? The only explanation that you can find in the text is because God was moved to mercy. His soul, again in verse 16 of chapter 10, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So he allowed Jephthah center stage for a time. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him in verse 29, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, through Mizpah of Gilead. From Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And then we come to verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And what a vow. He says, if then, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So there's the vow. There's the point of confusion. The first question we can ask, why did he vow it at all? Even the vow seems to be built upon the foundation that Jephthah knew the Lord was with him. I don't suppose, though there aren't any details given, that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone such as he did in verse 29, that Jephthah would have had some realization of it. Some infusion of power or strength or ability or, or peace about the whole situation certainly should have come upon him. So why then does he even need this vow in the vow itself, he says, if you will indeed, like it's already been revealed to him that the Lord is going to do this. But I suppose he's very closely related, not by blood, but in action to Gideon who laid out the fleece twice. Who needed some kind of reassurance. But here he's not even seeking reassurance. He's just saying, if you will do this, here is what I will do. Remember what we said in the ninth verse of chapter 11. I think it still comes into play here. The motivation is still the desire for power. 
and to be firmly cemented and established in that power. So I want to look at this vow and I want to pay careful attention to the words. Because the wording of the vow has to be a part of the way that we approach the end of the 11th chapter. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out the doors of my house. Notice verse 31, whatever comes out of the doors of my house. He leaves it open. He doesn't qualify this vow by saying, if it's my daughter, my only daughter, my only descendant. He doesn't even say, if it's my favorite pet, if he had one. He just says, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. And wouldn't we just be overjoyed if there was a period right there? And then we could understand. We could conjecture on how he devoted this person or this animal or whatever it may have been, how he would have devoted it to the Lord. Surely it will be the Lord's. But in the mind and heart and will of God, there is no period there. He has to go on. And he says, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. I want you to notice with me, however unpalatable it may be, remember who this man is. Remember, a worthless raider. Think of the blood this man had shed. Think of how akin to seeing someone's life end in his hands he would have been. Let's not make him anything else than the scriptures have made him at this point. He seems to be very willing by making this vow to carry it out. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He doesn't place any stipulations. He doesn't qualify it. And so verse 32, Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from Eror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel, Kiramim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So, Lord, if you will do this, the Lord did it, then I will do this. Will Jephthah do it? When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter. Coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. And we know from the scriptures, Old Testament, when people tore their clothes, it was a sign of the greatest distress and grief. 
And he said, alas, my daughter. And then there is a bit of blame shifting, I suppose we could call it. What had she done to this point? Just ran out the door, glad that her father had returned victorious in battle with timbrels and dancing. That's all she's done. But what does Jephthah say about and to her? You have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. I want you to see some of the, the literal translation of some of the Hebrew words here. Your Bible may give them for you in, in a notation. He says, I have given my word. Literally, that is, I have opened my mouth. And we want to insert a word there, don't we? I have opened my big mouth. Didn't have to. But I did. And he says, I cannot go back on it. Literally, I can't take it back. I've opened my big mouth and it's gotten me in trouble. Can't we all relate, though thankfully not to the degree of Jephthah. So what's her response? After he tries to put the blame on her, you have brought me low. You are among those who trouble me. What is her response? She says to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander in the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends, bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And so it was at the end of the two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. What do we do with those verses? Might I remind you of something I said at the beginning? There's no condemnation given anywhere in the scriptures, not just here, but also there's no commending. There is only silence. It's my view and my understanding that Jephthah did literally offer his daughter as a burnt offering. That may not be a popular view. There are many who would deny it and try to tame this a bit by saying he offered her to the Lord as a perpetual virgin to serve the Lord in any capacity, consecrating her to the Lord. That's a very popular view but I just can't square it. And let me say, if you hold it, I know other good men who hold it, I respect it, but I just can't square it with several things out of this text. His grief at returning home, his words, the tearing and rending of his clothes, 
when he says, alas, my daughter. And then what about a plain understanding of this verse where it says, verse 39, he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. That verse, that little description after the fact lends to the view that he only consecrated her to the Lord. But know this. This is a condemnation of Jephthah more so than of her. What this means for him, she being his only daughter, is his name would end in his death. There is no one to carry on his name throughout history. This is such a grievous thing and it rightly confuses us and causes us to scratch our heads and and wonder why does God not condemn it here? Why Why is there not something here that will plainly once and for all put the lid on Jephthah and we just have to back away from it and, and say there's not. There's just not. What we do find in verse 38, or excuse me, verse 36 is her response. And can't you almost hear these words coming out of Isaac's mouth as Abraham lays him on the altar, getting ready to sacrifice him? Can't you almost make these words apply there? My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. She's just as willing to be offered as Isaac. God doesn't stay the Father's hand here, apparently. If he did, we have no mention of it. We're just left to deal with this in this way. He carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. And I think it also is fitting because of the custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went out four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the the Gileadite, the one who seemingly had died in innocence from no fault of her own who willingly gave herself to the hand of her father who acted very rashly. What, what do we learn from this? Be very careful. Pray to God that your actions are not based upon pride and an inherent desire to be somebody. Jephthah, I think, so desperately wanted to be restored among the people that had kicked him out that he headlong, very rashly went into this vow. And then perhaps because of his misunderstanding of the law of God. If you study the law of God, there is a portion of the law that could have been appealed to by Jephthah to dismiss his daughter from the vow, but he didn't appeal to it. He didn't know it. But this is not the end of this man. We'll come back to this before we close. There is another issue here, another familiar issue with Jephthah, The Ephraimites come to him and notice, again, same issue. It's pride driving this. They come to him and say, basically, why didn't you let us know you were going to annihilate the Ammonites so we could have received some of the glory too? 
Notice what they say. Since you didn't do this, we will burn your house down on you with fire. Okay. What does Jephthah, what does Jephthah say to them? He says, my people and I were in great struggle with the people of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life into my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up on this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And you remember this account. How did they know that they were truly Ephraimites? Well, there was this password, so to speak. They would say, pronounce the word for me, Shibboleth. And they would say, Sibboleth. And then they would take and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time, notice the number, 42,000 Ephraimites. 42,000 men mispronounced the word Shibboleth and lost their lives for it. Who's behind this? Jephthah. And then we come to the end of him. Verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. So there's not just one. We might say two controversies surrounding Jephthah. The obvious one is his daughter. The second... It's not just that these men mispronounced this word. The issue was that they could not pronounce it right, and he knew it. That would be like trying to get a person from Northeast Texas to use proper grammar and pronunciation, right? We just can't. We ain't going to do it, right? Jephthah knew that going in, and this was, this was a setup. And we don't know how he reached this conclusion, how he schemed this, but nonetheless, notice the scriptures here, for he could not pronounce it right. It wasn't just that he wouldn't, he couldn't. For whatever reason, his mouth just wouldn't form that first syllable. And then from verse 7, with Jephthah, the next time you see his name, Hebrews 11. Time would forbid me to tell of Jephthah, this great man of faith. Well, let's give him his due. For all of his failings, for all of his rashness, for all of his seeming cruelty, he did have faith enough to go on with the Lord into battle when the odds were stacked against him. And in that, he's much like Gideon. What do we see in Jephthah? This is the best summary I could come up with. The scandal of grace is on full display in this man. How could such a, a worthless, raiding scoundrel find himself immortalized in the Faith Hall of Fame? Only grace. But isn't the scandal of grace really on display in all of us too? 
isn't it? Listen to Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 12. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, nor sodomites. And and we feel somewhat safe from being excluded from that group. But verse 10 says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We're not so safely excused from that group. But notice they're all lumped together. What's the next verse say? And such were some of you. That's the scandal of grace, right? Verse 11 finishes by saying, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It would be just as striking for you to open Hebrews 11 and see your name there as it is to see Jephthah's name there. Perhaps even more so. But thankfully these words apply Where sin abounded, grace has much more abounded. And the Lord Jesus has done for us exactly what Paul says. He washed us, cleansed us, sanctified us, justified us in the name of Jesus and the Spirit of our God. Lo and behold, in the end, written in the Lamb's book of life, there is my name and there is yours. Based upon the merits and the blood of Jesus. That's the only reason Jephthah's name is found in Hebrews 11. The merits of Christ. The blood of Jesus. Dependent upon his own works, he would forever be justly condemned in a sinner's hell. But God, as we read out of Ephesians chapter 2, who is full of mercy, made us alive. May he make some more alive today. Let me pray and we're going to move in to commemorating the supper. Father, we come this morning in faith. We come in submission to your word. We come still somewhat confused about this man Jephthah. Perhaps the answers we wanted are not supplied. But in the end, we see that your grace covers a multitude of sins. Great ones, small ones, all added together. The blood of Jesus redeems from all. We're thankful to have verses like this that we've read even though we can be rightly lumped in with those of whom it is said 
they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're thankful, even though such were some of us, all of us, that we were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We're thankful for this ordinance that you have given us to remind us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that covers all of our sin, that completely and totally redeems us in your sight so that we can be seen through the eyes of a holy God as totally righteous through and through. Oh God, give us a greater understanding of that truth. How often we want to look at how far we have to go in sanctification. How much we still struggle with the old man of sin that resides within us. And we confess that that struggle is real. But we also want to know and confess that we have indeed been raised with Christ. And seated in heavenly places. Having received already, yet not fully, that which we will receive in times to come. So, Lord, help this, help this time to be full of meaning for us, not just a, a ritual that we go through. We're thankful that in such vivid display, you remind us of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Help us to do this in faith, we pray and ask it in Christ's name.